Hello, Rory McKiernan here and welcome to this rather different type of episode of the Love and Courage podcast. This is a cross post of an interview I did recently on the United Ireland podcast, which is a popular podcast hosted by Una Mullally and Andrea Horan. In it, I talk about a campaign I led recently concerning the plight of Syrian refugees living in the Irish Midlands. I know that these are challenging times for many of us in lots of different ways, but I find it hard not to think about the more vulnerable among us. And I think that refugees and asylum seekers are groups that need additional care, support and solidarity during these times. So I talk about all of this and a particular campaign in this interview, as well as a few other topics, including life during lockdown. I hope that you're doing well. Wherever you are, whatever you're up to and that good things are coming your way. It seems that we're in for more turbulence, at least in the short term, but I'm confident we'll find both the love and courage we need to make it through. These are among the themes of my wife, Susan Quirk's new single, which will be released very soon. Uh, Something I'm working on with her um, to get it ready, to get it out into the world. Some exciting news around her music coming very soon. Um, So I'll be sharing that on my social media platforms and elsewhere when it's released soon. And if you want to check out Susan's music or indeed her work in the area of meditation, just head over to susanquirk.com. That's Susan, Q-U-I-R-K-E.com. And she's on all the various social channels and YouTube, etc. Meanwhile, I continue my Hitching for Hope virtual book tour supported by Culture Ireland. I recently held an event with the Irish Network in DC, Washington DC, which went great. And I've more coming up in San Francisco, Denver in the US and also in Sweden. And I've also got more episodes of the Love and Courage podcast in production coming down the track. So stay tuned. So for now, let's head over to this interview I did on the United Ireland podcast and do check out the United Ireland podcast when you get a chance. Thanks again, folks. So last week, Longford Council met with families from Syria who are living in Ireland to address serious accommodation needs that were brought to light. Well, I first saw them anyway, um, when uh, Rory McKiernan um, was, was tweeting about it, and including one claim that a pregnant woman was sleeping in a car with the engine running to keep warm. Um, families living in Granard in Longford had, had raised concerns as well about their accommodation in the town. So what happened and how can we ensure that the needs of families who come to Ireland as refugees are looked after properly? Rory is joining us to discuss this. Uh, Rory McKeon is an author, campaigner, former member of Council of State. He's the founder of spunout.ie, a uh, former Fulbright Scholar, founding member of Up- Uplift and host of the Love and Courage podcast. Uh, we're also cognizant that we are talking about families who aren't appearing on the podcast today, but there are privacy issues and so on there. So we're going to discuss this more generally uh, with Rory, who brought this to light. Rory, you are from Cavan, I believe, but this is a Longford episode, so going to have to uh, switch sides a little bit. How are you keeping? I'm keeping very good, yeah. Thanks for having me on the podcast. So... Bring us back to what happened. When and how did you first hear that there were issues with accommodation in Longford uh, for for uh, families who are also refugees? Um, well, I suppose I've been involved in various um, types of community work for 20 years or so now, and I've travelled extensively around Ireland. So I know people in, in all corners, really, at this point. And I also have family and friends in Longford. And so... Basically, somebody contacted me a couple of weeks ago and said this situation's going on. And 
What really captured me was, as you described it, um, a story of a pregnant woman sleeping in a car to keep warm. And I just couldn't get that thought out of my mind. And, you know, it was like a whole spotlight just emerged in my mind on that. I couldn't get away from it. And it was around the time the Mother and Baby Homes report had come out and very much around women and pregnant women and institutions and how we treat and care and support and don't support. And I just couldn't get away from the parallels as well. So, I mean, it's it's not something you hear about and just ignore, you know, so I just set about making inquiries, really. What, um, what is the situation with accommodation um, in Longford for refugees and how do they end up in this situation? Yeah, so... Um, the kind of refugee and asylum seeking process has, has all sorts of different components, but these are what are known as program refugees that come under the UN agreement um, that Ireland's part of. And really on balance, Ireland takes a very, very low and modest percentage of refugees in Europe. Um, so we're talking about a couple of thousand over the last couple of years. And we're predominantly talking, particularly obviously in this context, about Syrian refugees. And we think about Syria, it has been called the world's greatest humanitarian catastrophe in recent years. You're talking about four to 500,000 people killed, 50% of the population displaced internally and and into refugee camps in Lebanon and throughout Europe um, and moving into Europe then. And, and people will be familiar with the images um, of dinghies and people drowning in refugee camps in Lesbos and so on. So um, these people came as part of the resettlement program. And in fact, were keen to kind of relay and are keen to relay that they were invited here by the Irish government um, as part of the re and promised and offered sanctuary, you know. So uh, they didn't, you know, they didn't have any great dream to be in Ireland, um, but they're very arrived here, grateful and relieved to be provided with shelter and sanctuary and are now over a year into that journey. And we're grateful to be given accommodation as part of that. Um, so this is entirely distinct from the direct provision system, which is worthy of many more episodes. And I'm, I'm sure you, you covered that as well. But um the bottom line is that the accommodation they were given was not fit for purpose and is not fit for purpose. And really, it's a very simple scenario. We shouldn't even be talking about it. The truth be told, it could have been sorted with a couple of phone calls. And if anybody really cared enough, the issues were raised over the course of a year, flagged through due process and all that kind of stuff. And I kind of set about looking into it and sent courteous emails, made inquiries, all the rest, gave the authorities a week or so to reply. And at which point I'm busy with all sorts of other things. Um, I I don't know if I, I, I probably do regret now that I didn't go in harder and faster, to be honest. I, I just assumed that, that really when the alarm bells were raised and I, I more, I didn't threaten, but I made it pretty obvious that I wasn't going to be letting it lie. And a week later, nothing had happened. And I went, I can't believe it. I'm going to have to blow this up. And that's where you probably saw it on Twitter and contacting the media and so on. And then, you know, the media wanted me to talk about it. I was very, very reluctant. And they basically, Shannon side Norton said they needed somebody to go on air and 
that became me and I became this kind of conduit person between the families and community and support workers. And we just kind of raised all hell uh, diplomatically, politely, but firmly and basically succeeded and had to force Longford County Council's hand to do a very simple kind of due process um visit the families, have a meeting with them, get the Longford County Council CEO. At this point, there's journalists involved, there's several TDs, there's junior minister, you know, and I'm just going like, this is absolutely ludicrous. I ended up taking a week off work and freelance. So that brings its own challenges. Um, but, you know, happily to do that, but also incredulous that this this is what we need to do in Ireland to make change. Um you know, and that this is a very it's a very serious issue for for these families. Um, but on the grand scheme, when we look at all the other many issues, it, it raises questions for me around how much campaigning energy we always have to keep expending for people to do the right thing. You know, so it brings me to this question of institutional inertia and what is at the heart of the dysfunction of the Irish state. And how does it go back so long of decades of institutionalization and direct provision being part of that now? And also now you see echoes of that, at how um, people from a war-torn country are being treated or are, are just not given the basic fundamental human respect that everybody deserves. So, you know, I'm glad to report that, that things are improving now rapidly, but we're keeping a very close eye on things and won't be shy to to get stuck in again where necessary. But I've since heard of similar going on in Galway and elsewhere. So, you know, systemic um, issues, which potentially systemic racism, certainly systemic inertia. And really, there's a rot there that I just think we can't ignore. And it's not unrelated to the mother and baby homes. And direct provision, again, bring it back to the spotlight there that it just it's it's over 20 years now and we just we cannot let it. It is the issue, one of the defining issues of our generation. Yeah, it does feel like every situation that's been coming up has got like the general public pushing along to get it brought to light, which is really frustrating. Um, But how much would you say the housing crisis has contributed to this situation? Um, this particular one, not so much. Um, I do think it's a huge factor in um, the context of direct vision in that you now have emergency direct vision centres have popped up around the country. Um, what's happening is that when people are given their asylum status after sometimes many years, uh, many soul-destroying years um, in direct vision centres or camps, as some people call them, um, they've nowhere to go and they're very vulnerable. They maybe haven't had education opportunities, work education, CV building. They don't have the same social network, cultural networks that you or I might have, haven't been born here. We know who to phone, who to talk to, who to ask about housing. Do you know anyone who might be able to help me out with this or with that? Um, so massive issues there and potentially a, a, a huge issue around homelessness then for, for asylum seekers and refugees. Um, we've seen recently where a, an emergency centre set up down the road from us, uh, where we live now in, in County Clare, down in Milltown, Malby. And really, uh, that started off as a really good news story in that the community really rallied behind the men that came from various countries, um, around 30, mainly younger men. And, um, we were bringing them swimming. There was music. There was all sorts going on. It was really breeding life into Milton Malby. It was becoming this phenomenal success story. And um, RT got got behind it and, and the Irish Indo and all sorts were reporting of this 
really great news story of integration versus what had happened elsewhere in Uttarard and other places where the far right had got involved and so on. Um, but what ended up transpiring was that the, the men were neglected and deprived of, of just on basic issues around food and you know, there was a whole myriad of issues emerged and we ended up having to campaign to get that place shut down and for the men to be sent to, to proper accommodation. So so that that is relevant to the housing crisis. And I think, um, you know, th- this kind of narrative emerges, unfortunately, it's, it's a very toxic and um, very narrow uh, narrative that we need to look after our own first. And, you know, we have to kind of interrogate that and say, well, who are our own? And also, like, if you want to go down that road of separating uh, people born in Ireland from elsewhere, then, you know, really, this is an issue that affects us all. And we should all unite around this one fight of housing as a fundamental right, as a human right, and shelter as something that humankind has needed from the beginning of time as a fundamental in order to be safe, peaceful, to be well in the world. It affects me and my wife. We're still renting. It affects so many people in my generation. It's causing undue stress, distress, hardship, um, and mental a mental toll on people. And, and then you take that about people that you and I know and then put that onto the more vulnerable populations. It's a horrendous situation and it's, it's another stain on the country. Um, so we can't really... You know, the danger is that we just get exhausted and we get beaten down and our spirits become deflated and we lose hope. And that's where we need to keep the fight alive. That's where we need to keep hope alive. And that's where these these small but significant victories matter. And they show us that we can achieve things, that we can always achieve things, that campaigning achieves things. You know, Rory, when you talk about like how you um, found out about this, like someone just rang you because they probably thought, oh, you know, maybe Rory will know what to do. And I think that different people who maybe work in um, media and who work in activism and who are just like buzzing about the place and of course politics as well, get these kind of calls. But I think what it also shows is that uh, from the broader public side of things, like I think people are generally really want to get involved in ending direct provision in a practical way or like really want to engage with um, asylum seekers or refugees or people who are coming to the country in, under high stress circumstances and go, well, maybe I can contribute something, but the access points don't seem to be there. How can people really engage with this issue? I mean, this issue in particular, move it a little bit away from it and go more into the the, the stuff around ending DP. How can people really build alliances um, with people who are experiencing substandard accommodation or you know, um, infinite institutionalization uh, in the in the case of direct provision, often because it can feel like we're shut as much as people are shut out from society in these kind of cruel and inhumane situations. The broader public is also shut out from helping and engaging and building relationships. Yeah, you're absolutely right to. Uh, uh you know, just name that the fact that most people are very willing and, and want to be involved in solutions and in positive kind of community efforts. And that would be true in Granard and Longford, like the Syrian families have had a generally good experience and are part very, very well integrated. And generally, um, people have been very, very accommodating, supportive, welcoming. We've all seen the kind of toxic trolling and, and comments that happen online, but that really is, and it's important to remember that it's a minority view, you know. Um, so to to your question, um, how it, it's important 
particularly when you look at uh, where direct provision centers, we're talking in the in the region of 6,000 people, if I'm not mistaken, in direct provision and generally are often in these very kind of old hotels, rundown, you know, mostly, well, generally always privately owned at this point, uh, like failed or rundown hotels or old institutional buildings and often really at the outskirts of town, sometimes with no footpaths, you know. And so when you look at the physical setting of some of these places, they are almost by design uh, removed from the life blood of the community and and people are on the margins in the physical sense as well as in the social sense. So it does need a concerted, uh, strategic and dedicated effort. So I do see all of these kind of friendship groups around the country. There's amazing things going on in Roscommon and Galway and Longford and Clare, all, all around the place. Um, and that's a credit to huge community efforts. And I also want to say something that I've noticed has is that they quite often, in my experience anyway, um, are female-led, and it's just something that I've noticed, and I've also become very, very curious about as well. But maybe that's another conversation. Um, but I think just care for people is, is so essential. And I know when I moved to Clare, I didn't know that many people, and people helped me out, made introductions, made friends. So if we can bring it down to friendship at a very like core human value and how do we get to know each other? And that's what was happening in Milton Malby very, very successfully through swimming and music. And, you know, the arts being such a, a, a force to bring people together and see the shared humanity in each other, to hear songs from Iraq and the Shannos kind of vibes running through the Iraqi songs and the songs of sadness. And then to hear that from like County Clare music as well. It's, it's just been incredible to witness. Um, and then just natural friendships emerge. But the challenge in all of this is that it reply, it, it relies on the ad hoc goodwill of people and their spare time and their volunteering efforts. And also they don't necessarily, the communities don't necessarily have the knowledge, the language capabilities, um, the the ins and outs of the systemic challenges that some of these people are facing. And so it does need a state response when it comes to integration. So I was talking to um I hope he doesn't mind me saying, but he's an amazing guy in his own right. Uh, Zach Moradi, he, his family are Kurdish. Um, he was on the Tommy Tiernan show recently and he came here with his family as part of the refugee uh, program. And he was talking about like the integration supports that his family received were relatively good. At least that was me. That's me paraphrasing him. I hope I'm not incorrect. But he did say that like the ball has kind of dropped somewhat in recent years. So it does look like there's a general apathy and inertia from the the Irish state when it comes to vulnerable people and in, in vulnerable people in general. And I, I remember reading about Hungarian refugees that came here in the 50s to a camp, I think it was in Limerick. And eventually, like a lot of them wanted to leave Ireland because they were so badly treated. And so we love to have this sense of ourselves as a kind, welcoming, warm, caring nation. And a lot of that is true. But the sad, harsh, harrowing reality is a lot of that is not true as well. And so we have to face up to that and ask a big existential question about who are we as a people? What do we value? And the state has to be a representation of that value system. And at the moment, there's a massive disconnect between the state and the people. And it constantly relies on the people to push forward. And that's including in COVID. Uh, you know, anyway, I won't get into the whole COVID thing because that's I'm opening up a can of worms. But yeah, um, 
you know, I do think the appetite's there, but we need a state response, an adequate one and rapidly so. You brought up COVID now, so you sound like a really <laughs> hopeful person. How have you found the pandemic and how have you been living in it? Yeah, um, well, okay, I'll get the horrible bits out of the way first. <laughs> um yeah, um, I, I'm someone who loves traveling. I love going abroad. I love buzzing around. I love buzzing around Ireland. So I haven't been able to do any of that. Um, my book came out, uh, my first book it took me six years to write and finish. It nearly broke me in the end. And it came out uh, the first week of the first lockdown. So that was quite a challenge. I had a book tour planned, posters up, all of that. And I had a UK and a US tour planned as well. I had a US publisher. So all of those things were br- were gone. But I had to like immediately situate the context in my mind that the most important thing here is people's uh, public health and well-being and and everyone being looked after well. And so it wasn't about me. And I think one of the big things around this is it's not about any one of us. It's about all of us. So um, thankfully, I was able to see that early on. I'd say about 60, 70, 80 percent of my work dried up in terms of paid work. And that's still the case. I'm always busy. I work like, you know, the guts of 50 hours a week or whatever it is. Um, So work's not a problem. Pay can be a challenge. But, you know, that's a reality for hundreds of thousands of people right now. And sometimes there's an element of maybe shame or or challenge on a personal level that we don't talk talking about our personal finances. But the more we kind of just breathe air and light into it, we can see that these are common challenges that we all face. But then, you know, beyond all this, life is pretty good for me. You know, I have food, I have shelter, I have an amazing wife, I have amazing friends, amazing family. I don't live near my family, sadly, but... Um, I get to swim in the sea every day in Clare. I listen to good music. I go for walks in nature and I just keep my head about me. And I've been doing these Zoom tours around the world, like book tours. So I'm doing, I've done 20 odd events in different countries and just keeping the light on and, and just, you know, feeding my mind with, with positive stuff while still, you know, not shying away from the challenges in the world as well. Tell us a bit about your book. Uh, okay. Yeah. Well, the book's about hope. So pretty relevant. It's called Hitching for Hope. It's part memoir of sorts. It's part, um, kind of travel adventure of hitchhiking adventures around Ireland, asking people about hope, um, particularly post Celtic tiger era. Uh, so a kind of doomed gloom, uh, recessionary time era when a lot of people were seeking hope. Um, but it's also just a look back on my life over maybe 20 years of, of kind of activism and, and change and trying to make sense of it all. Um, sometimes I think I've made sense of things and then <laughs> then the next day I don't. So it's just a, a never ending journey. Um, but it's been a great experience. I learned a lot from writing a book and I know you've been on that journey yourself. Um, and it's been amazing then I'm on a new journey launching it and, and it's just given life like I've, I'm in touch with a group in Sweden want me to do an event with them and I've an event in Washington DC and uh, soon and another in San Francisco so it's it's bringing me on this other journey as well and I've ended up writing again since then during one of the lockdowns and yeah so I, I don't know where it's all going but do any of us know where it's all going <laughs> I don't know no, you know we where don't. it's all going <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> Rory, thanks so much for, for taking the time out to, to share that story. Um, 
and uh, people should pick up the book Hitching for Hope and uh, hopefully talk to you soon. It's been a long time and it's great to chat to you. Thanks so much. Much appreciated and keep up the great work with the podcast. It's great. Love it. Rory here again. Thanks for listening and thanks to Una and Andrea at the United Ireland podcast. Please do check them out when you get a chance. Also, if you like the Love and Courage podcast, please do rate, review, subscribe and share where you can. All support is appreciated and special thanks to all you podcast patrons. Until next time, here's to you, to all of us and to a world of more love and courage. Thanks again.